Spencer's wrath will be terrible, it's retribution swift. The battle for castrate resistance is over. The battle for overall survival is about to begin. Following on from my brilliant impersonation of Sir Alec Guinness in our last Prostate episode, that was another mentor character from a seminal trilogy. That was Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, if he had been addressing an oncology conference. And it is quite fitting, Josh, as was my Alec Guinness impersonation, in addition to being brilliant, because this, like The Two Towers, is our second episode on our three-episode sojourn through prostate cancer. And today we are talking about what happens when the cancer becomes castration-resistant. Michael, I couldn't tell the difference between you and Alec Guinness. It was just... I was just transported into a different time, a different place when I was much younger at the movies watching it. You mean Ian McKellen? Ian McKellen. <laughs> you're, you're mixing up your old white brilliant actors. They, they just all look the same, Michael. I'm sorry. That's true. Next next week we'll do Richard Harris or Michael Gambon. Um, so today is our second episode as mentioned. And I guess this is the episode we talked last time about emerging treatments or the use of old treatments in a new setting, in the castration-sensitive setting. Today is going to be probably a lot more streamlined because the treatments are all treatments that we've talked about in the past, but it's going to be a little bit more old hat, I guess, because these are treatments that have been in the, shall we call it, the public domain uh, for many, many years, and there's a good amount of clinical and anecdotal experience behind them. I'm talking, of course, about abiraterone plus prednisolone with the COW hyphen double A302 trial and enzalutamide, not with prednisolone, and that'll be a major talking point this episode, I think, uh, in the PREVAIL trial. You're very right, Michael. And just because I feel like I'm going to go first. You you are going to go first. It's not like we uh, pre-plan this at all, but I guess we've, we've talked a lot about prostate cancer on this show, Josh, and so we don't need to go into what is prostate cancer. It's cancer of the prostate. But the... You just did. Yes, I, there, there's my two-word summary. But the only thing is, I guess, just defining what we mean by castration resistance, because that is a very important definition. Important it is, and I'll try to summarise this quite succinctly. So Important it is. Thank you. Another, well, it was no longer a trilogy, but it was once upon a time. Um, ADT, or androgen deprivation therapy, has been the backbone of prostate cancer therapy since 1941, blocking androgen receptor signalling. What's happened over time is new hormonal agents have been shown to extend survival in men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. But what does that mean? So when we look at ADT and prostate cancer, ADT suppresses the body body's testosterone or androgens, right? And that's great because it stops the prostate cancer from growing. But over time, the cancer becomes smart and ends up developing its own mechanisms to produce its own testosterone. So essentially, it's an in-house machine which can produce testosterone so it grows and multiplies. Historically, what happened, you had ADT, you progressed, you moved on to chemo because there wasn't any other option. And we all know that chemo does not cure this cancer. It controls it for a period of time and 
then we kind of, excuse my language, up a creek, which is not so good. When we look at enzalutamide, it's a targeted androgen receptor inhibitor. It competitively binds to the ligand binding domain of the androgen receptor and inhibits androgen receptor translocation and androgen receptor binding of DNA. What does that mean? It stops androgens being made by the cell. How's that for a summary, Michael? I love it. I love it. That's that's so succinct. So that's castration resistance. Josh, what do we do about it? Well, this is it. This is the trials we'll be talking about are old from 2012, 2014, a bygone era almost now in modern oncology. But there are now plentiful treatment options. Thus, we're having a triad of special episodes uh, to talk about what to do. And I guess we should mention the granddaddy of all of these treatments, which is docetaxel. Now, the reason we're mentioning this is because neither of the studies we're going to go into great depth allowed patients who had received docetaxel in the past. But docetaxel was the original game changer. There's a story uh, floating around Melbourne where I work of a very, a now very senior oncologist who's a head of unit. And those who have worked in certain parts of Melbourne will know exactly who I'm talking about, who on the day that the original study, the TAX327 study, came out, he actually filled an entire script pad with docetaxel for all of his prostate patients because it it had come out, it was rapidly uh, approved by the PBS so we could gain uh, access to it very cheaply. And he just used it on everybody because it was by far the best thing that had come out. But... uh, that was the that was where this whole process started. And as with anything in oncology, we're always looking at improving things. But of course, docetaxel is not a is is not kind a benign drug. treatment. Exactly. It's not a kind drug. Uh, it has its own set of toxicities. They can be quite severe. And in the castration resistance setting, you give docetaxel for ten cycles, so it's a little bit of a marathon as well. So there is always going to be a subset of patients who you look at and you would not give them docetaxel in a million years, which means what do we do? And that's where these two studies come in to play. That's it, Michael. And context for this study, there was a previous study before the Prevail that was enzalutamide versus placebo, and they were shown to have prolonged overall survival and progression-free survival in those who had previously been treated with docetaxel. Yeah, and there was a similar thing uh, for abiraterone, um, which was the COUAA301 study, which demonstrated the same thing in patients who had received docetaxel previously. The use of abiraterone versus placebo improved outcomes. So, Both of these studies are built on very similar, almost parallel paths. And now what we're looking at is, as is everything in oncology, is what happens if you move that treatment earlier on. Thus, the PREVAIL study. This was a double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled phase 3 trial. People were randomized to either enzalutamide, 160 milligrams per day. They come in 40 milligram tablets, so that's four tablets, with ADT as the backbone, versus placebo with ADT. There are multiple endpoints, but the primary endpoint was progression-free survival with another co-primary endpoint of overall survival. Participants could be those that were histologically confirmed. They could have METs, 
they could have had an orchidectomy. They had to have a suppressed serum testosterone and no prior chemotherapy with an ECOG of zero to one. Secondary endpoints, which is time until initiation of cytotoxic chemotherapy, time until a skeletal event, time until PSA progression, time until PSA delay, the list goes on and I'll talk about those. What we found at the 12-month mark is that the rate of radiographic progression-free survival was 65% versus 14% in the placebo group. We're already seeing a magnificent improvement in progression in patients who are given enzalutamide. Of course, in this study, patients were already progressing. So it's not unexpected that there's going to be such a dramatic difference. Would you agree, Michael? I would. It's like I always say, when you're in these studies, you're frequently comparing an agent with what is quite literally nothing. Yeah. So uh, a, a benefit is is to be expected. That's it. And a huge benefit we did see. So progression-free survival had a hazard ratio of 0.19. That is the best we have seen on that the is, show. That is the best. It's taken Flora's crown. It's 0.19. I don't think we're going to get much better than that. No, we're not. Um, and with a significant p-value, that was PFS. And overall survival had a hazard ratio of 0.71 with, a, with again, that was statistically significant. The median follow-up at the time of this first publication was 22 months, and it showed a 29% decrease in the risk of death, which is great. And a median overall survival was 32.4 months in the enzalutamide arm versus 30.2 months in the placebo group. Of course, cancer never stops, and neither does this podcast. <laughs> secondary, it only seems that way. It does. Um, secondary antineoplastic therapy, we saw um, 40% of the enzalutamide arm and 70% of the placebo group. Before I forget, patients were allowed to cross over. So crossover was allowed for this trial. Secondary endpoints, which I think are good to give context, Median time until cytotoxic chemotherapy initiated was 28 months versus 10.8 months in the placebo arm. So a hazard ratio of 0.35. Time until decline in quality of life was 11.3 versus 5.6 months. So that's 0.63 was the hazard ratio, almost double. Time until first skeletal event was actually quite similar, surprisingly. 31.1 versus 31.3 months. Although, again, was still statistically significant despite only having a 0.2 month difference. You are allowing for crossover, which means people who got placebo are then potentially able to receive enzalutamide, which, as we've discussed on the show before, will theoretically reduce the benefit that you see. If If they hadn't allowed crossover, you would have the patients on the placebo arm very quickly dropping off. That's exactly it. And that's why you're going to have very similar numbers of skeletal-related events because they're going to have that, thus they've switched across. Other things, confirmation change in PSA. People with um, greater than one post-baseline PSA, was most patients were followed up, and a decline of 50% from baseline was seen in 78% of the enzalutamide patients. So pretty darn good, and only 3% of the placebo. And when you saw a decline of 90% was in... 47% of the enzalutamide arm and 1% of the placebo arm. Moving on to other nice things to look at, complete response was seen in 20% of the enzalutamide, partial response in 39%, and objective response was at 59%. So pretty darn good. And I'm not even going to go into the control arm. (laughs) Yeah, 
there's there's not much point. But that is a really really good result, and is I guess the ex well, part of the explanation as to enzalutamide's popularity. Certainly, where I work, it's by far the most commonly used uh, androgen receptor blocker. But enzalutamide does have its own sort of set of problems, like any any of our treatments. Josh, what what were some of the issues that slightly reduce the sheen of this hazard ratio of 0.19. Yeah, there's there's toxicities. And remember, a lot of our gentlemen are younger or they might be in their 60s, they might be working, they might be very sexually active. All of these things play a role in their willingness to take a drug which is going to impact their quality of life and not cure them. These include fatigue. We're seen as 36% of patients Back pain, interestingly, in 27% and constipation in another 22%. Moving on, joint aches, decreased appetite, hot flushes, diarrhea, hypertension, asthenia. I'm selling it, aren't I? Um, Falls, weight loss, peripheral edema, and headaches. And again, the cardiac problems like atrial fibrillation in 2%, um, acute renal failure in 4%, uh, a stroke in you know, 1% or 12 patients. So, you know, it's not without its issues and you've got to be careful of patients that have significant cardiac history, patients who have renal dysfunction, patients who have significant liver dysfunction. And again, you can always maybe blame some of these toxicities on ADT, like the fatigue and the arthritis and the back pain, but we can't say it all because there is a difference between the placebo versus the intervention arm with, uh, toxicity profile that is favoring the placebo arm obviously because we're giving another drug absolutely but josh was there any data on neurological toxicity because that's something that i've heard about you know that's the thing you've got to be afraid of with uh, with enzalutamide particularly uh, with a significant proportion of these patients who are elderly and more frail yeah so falls definitely you see that in 12 percent or 100 patients seizures one patient, so not a lot. And I guess you could say maybe headaches, if that's a contribution, contribute headaches, if that is a contributing factor, was seen in 10% of patients. So enough neurological sequelae that might give people a second thought. And thus, there are other drugs on the market. Which I guess segues quite nicely to the main contender, certainly in Australia which is abiraterone. But before you go, Michael, I have one other thing to talk about. Sorry. Damn, just spoiling my segue there, Josh. I did. You're you're raring. I'm ready to go. I have a five-year follow-up data, which everyone wants to know. So overall, at the five-year mark, the overall survival analysis showed a reduction of the risk of death by 17% with a hazard ratio of 0.83%. They were still statistically significant and in a median follow-up of 69 months, the median overall survival is 35.5 months in the enzalutamide arm versus 31.4 months in the placebo arm. So you definitely saw a benefit in the intervention arm. Again, lots of questions with this, while statistically significant difference, not a huge difference, and thus there's been a lot of tinkering and changing when it comes to um, the subsequent therapies after patients in the carcerate resistant phase. A couple of other points to bring out, Michael, the long-term overall survival subgroup analysis. 
Overall, it benefited everyone. Patients who had an ECOG of one interestingly did a little bit better than an ECOG of zero. I don't, I don't know why. They probably have more to gain. Yeah, maybe. If, maybe if, if that ECOG is is due to their cancer, of course. And of course, patients over the age of seventy five did better than those under the age of seventy five. Yeah. Look, while that's all very interesting, I think you're still going to give offer someone enzalutamide and your heart won't skip a beat knowing that you've done the right thing. We will link the subgroup analysis into our summary because I think that's quite interesting. Um, It was from Euro Today for anyone who likes looking at updates. Michael, you can now take it away. Thank you, Josh. But I have one more point about (laughs) enzalutamide. Okay. Purely, uh, I'm not petty at all. No, the, the, the other thing with enzalutamide just in terms of practicalities, at least what we do where I work, is, as Josh mentioned, there is a incidence of liver toxicity. There is a small subset of patients who have severe liver toxicity in the first four weeks or so of starting enzalutamide. I think it's one of the more common reasons for people to be taken off enzalutamide, given that it's overall quite well tolerated. But... It is important to keep an eye out. So what we normally do is bring people back at two weeks with repeat blood tests, uh, make sure their LFTs aren't skyrocketing, and then again at four weeks. And if they haven't sort of gone completely off the reservation by that point, it's unlikely that they'll have significant toxicity that's going to lead to them being taken off the drug, barring sort of unrelated events. But... It is something to keep in mind when you are starting someone on enzalutamide. But Josh, at long last, we've been teasing our audiences now for a solid 19 minutes. But the main competitor for enzalutamide's crown in the castration resistance space as the androgen receptor blocker of choice is abiraterone. Specifically, abiraterone plus prednisolone. Um, We've talked previously about darolutamide, there's also apalutamide, but abiraterone and enzalutamide are sort of like Apple and Samsung phones in that they comprise a huge, the the vast majority of the the quote-unquote market share. So... Very the the trial I'm going to talk about, which is the COUAA302 trial, developed along very similar lines to Prevail, in that, as we've mentioned before, there was a previous study demonstrating clinical benefit of abiraterone plus prednisolone compared with placebo plus prednisolone in patients who had already received docetaxel with a hazard ratio of 0.65. That was back in 2011. And much like Prevail, the authors of the coup study thought, well, what about the patients who can't have docetaxel or didn't have docetaxel for whatever reason? Let's see how effective abiraterone is. And there was phase one and two data prior to the prior to this phase three placebo-controlled trial that suggested that abiraterone's the, the magnitude of abiraterone's benefit would be greater in the treatment naive space compared to if it was following docetaxel. So again, quite a large study with over a 1,000 patients who were randomised one-to-one to receive abiraterone plus prednisolone or placebo plus prednisolone. The in- inclusion criteria are not very interesting, to be honest. Obviously, they had to have normal hematolo- hematological and chemical laboratory values, which 
normally we sort of gloss over, but I guess in the prostate cancer setting is important to know because, Josh, what is an end-stage symptom or sign, I guess, of prostate cancer? Bone marrow infiltration is one of the ones that's really difficult to manage. Boom and boom. So as we often find with patients who have significant bone marrow infiltration, bone marrow failure, they are the patients who get cytopenias, which is much less frequent in other cancer types. A very important exclusion criteria for the Coup study, and Josh, I'd be interesting to see if Prevail had a similar stipulation, but Coup actually excluded patients with visceral metastases, which is cutting out a not insignificant proportion of patients who would have significant disease, particularly after the development of castration resistance. I think this is where our paths separate, Michael, and we take a different journey because Prevail allowed METs, which is quite interesting because these days the treatment of this specific cohort of patients would be very different. And you have to ask the question if we're comparing apples and oranges, which we do all the time. And then say we shouldn't do. And never should. That maybe the outcome of enzalutamide would have been far better than abiraterone if given the same cohort of patients with the same, you know, challenges and the same visceral diseases, etc. So that's quite an interesting yeah, interesting discussion point. Not to spoil it, but I think I, I don't think enzalutamide needs to have the slightly lower risk cohort for it to be at least numerically better. But we'll get to that. The endpoints for Ku were radiographic progression-free survival as well as overall survival. Those were the primary endpoints. The secondary endpoints were myriad. We talked about a similar study in the castration-sensitive space where they were trying to objectify a lot of quality of life endpoints. They do a similar sort of thing here, but for my money, not quite as well. Um, So the secondary endpoints were time to opiate use for cancer-related pain, time to initiation of cytotoxic chemotherapy, time to decline in ECOG status, as well as other things like health-related quality of life, which they use questionnaires for. They also uh, examined time to PSA progression, the PSA response rate, which they defined as a greater than 50% decline in the PSA from baseline, and the objective response rate. The demographics, again, we won't go over too much. They were well-balanced. A couple of things of note, though. There was a significant proportion of patients who were greater than or equal to 75 years old which I thought was good, and following on from our recent episode on geriatric oncology is not something that you see. There was a 50-50 split between low and high volume of bony disease. Again, as we said, there were no visceral metastases in these patients, but there were patients with obviously more bony mets than others. The median time from the initiation of ADT to the first dose of the study drug was 40 months, which is uh, not bad and shows the effectiveness of ADT in the castration-sensitive space. And you mentioned crossover in Prevail, Josh. That was also allowed here. An overall 44% of patients that were initially in the control group went on to receive abiraterone, which was either as part of the crossover protocol or just as subsequent therapy when they were revealed to have had the placebo. Their oncologist presumably just said, here, have some abiraterone after the trial had been completed and abiraterone had been released into the wild. So in terms of results, again, abiraterone is better than placebo. That's not really saying much. The radiological progression-free survival 
in the initial publication was not reached in the abiraterone group versus 8.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.43. And it was one of those very nice forest plots where all of the subgroups were left of the line of equivalence. So there was no outstanding subgroups that didn't appear to benefit as well. Hey, Michael, um, I'm just interjecting here with your lovely results. Is there any evidence of switching these drugs, going from one to another in this setting? So I think at the time of publication, that was something that was thought to potentially be an option. But subsequently, we found there was a cabazitaxel study that whose name escapes me, where they allowed for switching from one ASRI to another. And I think there's a lot of clinical data that really definitively says that that doesn't work. So if someone progresses through one ASRI, that's generally not advisable. And in Australia, it's not allowed to re-challenge them with another similar agent. Unless you have an intolerance to that specific drug, in which case you can switch across because they're obviously not resistant, they just can't tolerate it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the progression that's key. In terms of overall survival, this was, this is again where enzalutamide starts, I think, to get a, a bit of a leg up on abiraterone. In the initial publication, the overall survival was not reached in the abiraterone group versus 27 months in the placebo group with a hazard ratio of 0.75. However, this initial result did not reach the pre-specified boundary for significance. So at the time of the initial publication, you would say that the addition of abiraterone does not significantly improve overall survival, statistically speaking. The final analysis published in 2015 demonstrated that there was a benefit for abiraterone, but not as much as one might think. Josh, you mentioned your astounding hazard ratio of 0.19 for enzalutamide. The hazard ratio for abiraterone is basically that, but with the numbers the wrong way around, with a hazard ratio of 0.81. In real terms, people were getting four and a half more months with uh, abiraterone versus placebo. Now, with the high degree of crossover, you've got to take that into account, but it's still not quite the same degree of uh, benefit. And again, remember, this is an overall population that is probably not as high risk as the one in Prevail because they specifically excluded patients with visceral metastases, which, as we know from the castration-sensitive space, is a marker of poorer outcomes. The secondary endpoints were pretty much in abiraterone's favour across the board, so opioid use, time to commencement of cytotoxic chemotherapy, time to, to decline in ECOG, PSA progression, they were all better with abiraterone versus placebo. And I guess the other thing that might actually minimise the benefit of abiraterone, potentially in comparison to enzalutamide, is the presence of prednisolone. We know that steroids, both prednisolone and dexamethasone, do have a very mild anti-cancer effect in the prostate cancer setting. So when I sort of slightly pejoratively say it's abiraterone compared with literally nothing, it's not quite that. And the people who are in the quote-unquote placebo group are getting a very, very mild anti-cancer treatment. Um, so that might be go some way, plus the 
high rate of crossover or people who are getting abiraterone subsequently, that might go some way to explain why these results are not as inspiring as the enzalutamide group. But of course, Occam's razor would suggest that abiraterone is just not as good. The adverse event profile, again, abiraterone is well tolerated, but because of the prednisolone, you've got significant rates of mineral acorticoid effects, such as hypertension, hypokalemia, and fluid retention or edema. There is also a very small rate of cardiac disorders. Um, there was about 4 or 7% of patients who had new diagnosis of cardiac arrhythmias. And with the high rate, higher rates, I should say, of fluid retention and edema, you've always got to be careful giving abiraterone and prednisolone in patients with pre-existing cardiac disorders. So that's a bit of a practice point. You'd probably err towards abiraterone in patients who had pre-existing neurological issues. But on the flip side, for patients with cardiac disorders or renal disorders that impact their fluid balance, you would probably want to consider enzalutamide, even discounting debates over which one is more efficacious. So to wrap up AA302, Josh, abiraterone is better than prednisolone alone for patients with untreated castration-resistant prostate cancer. The benefit is significant in radiographic progression-free survival, but is perhaps a only modest numerically in the overall survival department, and we've gone over the reasons why. The outcomes in terms of disease tempo and quality of life, so time to initiation of cytotoxic chemotherapy was a big one that caught my eye, are all improved in favour of abiraterone. But you should always consider the consequences of co-administering abiraterone with prednisolone and dexamethasone because there's evidence that in patients who progress on abi plus pred, you can potentially switch them to abi plus dex for a little bit of extra anti-cancer therapy to squeeze out as much benefit from the Abbey as you can. But you've got to be mindful of the side effects. Every med student, every junior doctor, everyone knows that steroids over a long period of time are not good. But I guess the the final part of this episode, Josh, will be a bit of a question as to which one is better for the majority of patients. And we will, of course, leave Aside the usual, you've got to discuss it with the patient, you've got to tailor the toxicity to the patient in front of you. Say if you or I with our fairly low rates of comorbidities were faced with a choice of abiraterone versus enzalutamide, I guess, which one would you take or which one would you recommend? Definitely enzalutamide, without a doubt. I mean, it's always difficult to compare these two drugs because they weren't same cohort of population but numerically enzalutamide looks better you don't have to take the pred you don't have to take the dex which long term can cause problems especially with sleeping michael a lot of my patients on abby complain of that and then you're adding another drug to a cohort of patients already already... pharmaceuticalness that's the technical yes, term. Yes, that and maybe annoyed at you, annoyed at you because you're, you're saying we've got to give you drugs to try and control your cancer. I think the one thing that I would consider maybe abiraterone would be patients who have neurological issues, mm. whether that be dementia or, or history of seizure. High falls risk. Yeah, exactly, because there's, there's far less. And look, that you can very much look at A and then look at B and sort of really have that conversation from a toxicity standpoint. 
I think I agree with you, Josh. Uh, it will be interesting as well to see how the landscape changes when something like Darylutamide comes along. Because as you know, I am Darylutamide's number one fanboy. But certainly that fits with the landscape, at least where I work currently, that enzalutamide is better, it's frequently simpler, and yes, there is a narrow cohort of patients that we've mentioned where you would consider abiraterone, but if you're faced with a bland patient, let's call them, a patient with no identifiable features other than the fact that they have castration-resistant prostate cancer, then you're looking at probably preferring enzalutamide. But the quest- the other question, of course, given our previous episodes and our previous discussions on this topic, is we're probably going to see fewer and fewer patients who are naive to these sorts of treatments. And it will be interesting to see what the clinical and trial data, if there, if there ever is a trial that's done on this subject, is on patients getting re-challenged. We know that, as we've said, uh, patients who have progressed on one uh, androgen receptor blocker in the castration resistance space are generally resistant to the rest. But if you develop castration resistance to, say, darolutamide or enzalutamide, could you then turn around and give them abiraterone? And and that's a that's a question that I honestly don't know the answer to. Michael, I have a little bit of experience in this field. There's a couple of trials being run which are looking at resetting the intrinsic resistance of the cohort of patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer where we give them high-dose testosterone and carboplatin to try and change that. And it'd be interesting, look, the the data isn't all out, but the the preclinical and the early phase stuff is, which shows a potential benefit. And in a case like this where you look at resetting intrinsic resistances, maybe, just maybe, would be able to retrial these tablets these medications to improve outcomes ongoing from that is the look at the epigenetic landscape in prostate cancer where you look at chromatins and the unfolding of the genetic dna sequences and they're looking at a lot of these additional i'm not going to print i'm not going to describe this properly but essentially arms of this this dna that if you can inactivate or unravel part of this then maybe you can change those resistant mechanisms and all of our drugs can be used for forever and a day the uh, that would be a bit of a holy grail i guess because if you can just reset cancer resistance then as you say that probably more than anything else blows out the survival uh, out of interest do you know how how long they're giving the high dose testosterone and carboplatin for is it a is it a short course in these trials it's an ongoing, It's an so you're given the carboplatin once a month. It's an AUC5 loading, and you're given the testosterone, I think it's 500 milligrams. Oh, I see. In, in, um, in combination with the, with the ASRI. Yeah, I think the longest, I, I don't have all the data in front of me, but there are people who respond for quite a while on this. Mm. Um, issues include being able to identify patients who respond because PSAs don't always reflect radiographic response to these specific treatments yeah and it would be interesting to i guess see how much of the effect is from the carboplatin because carboplatin is used in combination with cabazitaxel 
frequently as a as a last line treatment for prostate cancer when all other lines have failed. You're right. There's quite a bit of evidence that supports the use of carboplatin. Uh, prior phase two trials have shown a 20% benefit on top of conventional therapy. As Michael said, it's last ditch. The toxicities are high. But Mikey, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about next week? Well, I guess talking about nth line treatment, Josh, is quite a nice segue because we're talking, we've we've done the big hitters, we've done the the novel anti-androgen agents, which aren't really that novel anymore, but they're still by far our best weapon against prostate cancer. But barring astounding results from Josh's super special epigenetic study that he is definitely running himself, treatments will always fail and they'll always falter. So our next episode, our final conclusion to this epic trilogy, we'll be examining some of the newer and some quite old, I guess, treatments of heavily pre-treated castration-resistant prostate cancer. We'll be talking about lutetium PSMA, which is a very, very exciting novel agent that is gaining significant traction in the prostate cancer space, as well as cabazitaxel, which is a agent that really tends to only be pulled out when most other agents have failed. So join us next time for the thrilling conclusion to our prostate trilogy. Sounds good. I'm looking to... I wanted to say something about Back to the Future. I feel that could have been a nice ending. Where we're going, we don't need roads. (laughs) No, or cabazitaxel, hopefully. See you then. Hopefully not. We'll see you then. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.